In what we're doing now, we are getting to a feel of the world that is neither organic nor Welcome back, Meditations in Molotovs. I am your host, Vince Emanuele. It is another Monday. You can find us here every Monday on the Progressive Radio Network. That's prn.fm at 2 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Well, there's a ton of stuff that happened over the last seven days, as there always is, uh, week to week with the show. Today, though, we'll be joined by a guest, Liza Featherstone, who recently edited a collection of essays entitled False Choices, the Faux Feminism of Hillary Rodham Clinton. Contributions from Laura Flanders, Kathleen Geyer, Francis Fox Piven, Belene Fernandez, Donna Murch, Medea Benjamin, and many more. So Liza should be here with us in about five, a little less than five minutes. Until then, I do want to put out a couple of announcements here. Let's see. The first one is about a commemoration and days, like a sort of a day-long, 24-hour community education session that's taking place in Gary. Indiana. It's called Black Power 50th Commemoration and Intergenerational Freedom School, Fighting for Our Liberation and Gary's Future, Black Political Power in the 21st Century. So you can register at the Facebook event, check out Black Power 50th Commemoration, it's taking place at the Ivy Tech in Gary. So just want to let people know about that event. It seems very, very interesting. I saw it shared by uh, Renee Hatcher. She writes that over the years in Gary, Indiana, many organizers, acti activists, and engaged citizens have raised the following questions. How can we go about politicizing more folks in Gary, young and old alike? How do we fight back against the neoliberal policies that have been instituted in Gary and around the country? What do we want our future and the future of this city to look like? Why do Gary residents allow state and regional actors to craft the narrative and rewrite the history of our city? And why are the majority of young folks born and raised in Gary not introduced to the city's local history? In an attempt to begin addressing these and other important questions, we propose an all-day freedom school in commemoration of the 50th year since the cry for black power first rang out throughout this country. In an effort to foster leadership development and critical thinking, the freedom school will be people-centered and culturally relevant. In creating the broad strokes of our day together, we turn to the efforts, histories, and achievements of our ancestors, our local history, 
our respective and collective critical analyses and the experience and conditions of Gary residents. Topics or segments may include the power structure and developing a power analysis, class politics, poor black folks and poor whites working together, material things versus soul things, the black freedom movement, blacks and urban policy, spatial racism, examining the apparent reality, white privilege and regional politics. So check it out. This is sponsored by the Black Freedom School Institute Collective. Check it out on Facebook. As I said, Black Power 50th Commemoration. I think it'll be a great event. Now, there was another event that took place in Chicago over the weekend. This was the People's Summit. Now, I didn't go to the People's Summit. Some people say I was remiss not to go. But I simply couldn't handle another political conference. It's been man, I don't know how the I don't know how people actually go continue to go to the conferences. I know on one level it's a social event. So I do understand that part of it. You know, like people come, they hang out with their friends, they get drinks afterwards, they go out to some of the cool cafes and restaurants in the city and so forth. I get that part of it. I do get it. Looking at the actual schedule and the lineup for the event, I became less and less inclined to go because it just seemed to me like the organizers had already sort of decided what the platform was going to be and that there was very little organization and very little vision in terms of what it was the summit hoped to accomplish outside of as I saw during the sessions that I tuned in because the vast majority of the summit was actually streamed live the vast majority of what I saw was more of a, a sort of a rally type of atmosphere where people were sort of cheering each other on and, and talking to each other about why the ideas that Bernie Sanders' campaign represented were good and why, every, why people should be happy. And I, I mean, see more, it seemed to me more like a pep rally in some ways. I don't want to be too critical. I'm going to have a friend of mine on the program here in the coming weeks to talk about that conference and many other issues. I don't want to be too critical, but it just seemed to me like the event was lacking. I don't know. I mean, I from other people, um, so, you know, I so I had a friend who went to the event and he wasn't, um, you know, let's say a full-time activist. This isn't something that he's constantly doing with himself. And he left the event sort of frustrated and, you know, wondering if there was more. In any case, I'm, you know, I, 
I'll have to. I'd have to say. I don't know. Um, well, I'm sorry about that. I had a uh, had a little um, mix up here. Okay, so the point about the People's Summit is that, I, in my opinion, there could have been more. I'm sorry, I got thrown off there a little bit. I mean, most of what I saw, including the opening panel, which was really, I mean, if of all of the panels that should really challenge the attendees to think about things in a more dynamic way, in a more nuanced way, there was really, I mean, they had a representative from the National Nurses United Union. Uh, they had a representative, who else was on there? Well, Naomi Klein. No, that was it. It was, the, it was a, uh, a, a representative from the NNU, National Nurses United, Rosario Dawson, the actress and activist, Naomi Klein, the author and journalist, and also an author and journalist, John Nichols. Now, folks, is there anything inherently wrong with John Nichols or Naomi Klein or, you know, um, Rosario Dawson? Not at all. No one's arguing that. You know, no one's arguing. Let's be very clear here. I'm not arguing that there's anything inherently wrong with these people, that these people are bad people, that these folks have bad intentions. So let's, you know, let's just cut that crap out right now and let's just, you know, sort of get down to brass tacks here. I don't find any of their politics to be particularly challenging or interesting. So... Part of what I think we have to do, you know, as people who are grassroots activists, people who are in the streets, organizers, and so forth, I think people should be very clear in challenging figures, even figures on the left that are considered maybe quote-unquote experts. Those views, and, and I think the, their work, should constantly be challenged. I think this is a disservice to each other if we don't do that. So we'll talk more about the People's Summit and what took place in Chicago probably next week, if not the week after. And I'll have a guest on that has been a great friend of mine and a wonderful organizer in the city of Chicago. I first met him doing anti-war work with Iraq Veterans Against the War when I first came home from Iraq and joined IVAW. He went on to work with the Metropolitan Tenants Organization and now organizes with the Rep Restaurant Opportunities Center in Chicago. So we'll talk with this gentleman, who I'm, who I'm referring to in the, in the coming weeks. But today we are speaking with Liza Featherstone, who Liza Featherstone is a journalist based in New York City and a contributing editor to The Nation where she also writes the advice column, Asking for a Friend. Her work has appeared in New York Times, Miss, and Rolling Stone, among many other outlets. She is the co-author of Students Against Sweatshops, The Making of a Movement, published by Verso in 02, and author of Selling Women Short, 
the landmark battle for workers' rights at Walmart, published by Basic in 2004. She is also the editor of the book, False Choices, the Faux Feminism of Hillary Rodham Clinton. So welcome to the program, Liza. Thank you very much. And sorry about that mix-up. If I don't oh, know if I, yes. if I, I just sent you an email, so. Oh, yeah. No, I, um, I, I just didn't realize that, um, I, I forgot that I was supposed to be calling you and that you aren't going to be calling me. Oh, no worries. No worries. Yeah, well, you know, I did. Thanks for coming on the program. I appreciate your time. Sure. So I just finished reading False Choices. It's awesome. By the way, just thank you for the work that you do and thank you for this work in particular. Oh, you're very welcome. You know, I, friends of mine, and it's really interesting. I mean, I live, so just to give you a little background about myself, grew up on the southeast side of Chicago, live uh, half my life here in northwest Indiana, which is very much sort of a Rust Belt region. So I'm surrounded mm -hmm. by all kinds of different folks. And, you know, my entry into politics was through the anti-war movement when I came home from Iraq, where I was, uh, mm -hmm. I was in Iraq twice with the Marine Corps, came home after refusing to deploy for a third time, got involved with the anti-war movement, and since then have been exposed to so many interesting movements and people. And so it's a great pleasure of mine, as I see it, just being sort of a regular kid that's, you know, living in northwest Indiana that gets an opportunity to speak with all of these really great thinkers and writers and activists. And I just want to say that your book has been one of the books that I've been giving, and I have you know, friends in the area who are Bernie Sanders supporters, Hillary supporters. I even know many people who support Trump because I'm sort of in his wheelhouse, being in a mm -hmm. deindustrialized zone. And, right, um, sure. you know, your book, um, My Turn by Doug Henwood and Queen of Chaos by Diana Johnstone, have been sort mm -hmm. of the three books that I've been telling everyone and their mother to please get. Um, so I just want to tell you, yeah, thanks for putting it out there. I think it's excellent. It's just really oh, an great. excellent collection of essays. Well, thanks a lot. Um, and obviously, um, I should be thanking you because for um, you as a veteran to be doing that kind of anti-war work is really some of the most important political work that a person can do. So we appreciate that very much. Well, you know, it's interesting. Today, so I've got it's all my friends who are like anti-war activists, my friends who are anti-war activists, always come over and they'll be like, why do you have this Marine Corps flag flying out in front of your house? Well, today was a good example of that, and it sort of ties all of this together for me. So a woman was walking by this morning, and sitting out on my patio, reading and getting ready for the interview, and, and she walked by and she came up and she said, can I talk to you, please? I said, sure. You know, we introduced ourselves. Her name was Katie. Um, she says she was about 68 years old. So she's a year younger than my father. And she, you know, she said, are you a Marine? I said, yes. And, and she said, my grandson wants to join the Marine Corps, and I really don't want him to join. And she mm -hmm. said, I've been scared to ask anybody who's a Marine, but she's like, I figured I don't know you, and I'm only here on the weekends where she, you know, she has a vacation home in this area over by the lake, by Lake Michigan. And um, she said, so I didn't feel intimidated asking you she's like but you know what do you think about this so it's a long conversation about militarism mm -hmm. why her son shouldn't join and it turns out you know part of what she was telling me was how her her son-in-law or former son-in-law it 
is like this sort of hyper masculine person and, and that his his son, her grandson, who she's so worried about, has become increasingly sort of like hyper masculine in the same way. Like, you know, this is what it means to be tough, to be the hard bodied hero, to be the you know, to be a man in the society is to pick up a gun and, and go kill people. Like that's the you know, this is the most yeah. heroic thing we can do here in American society. And, and we got in this long conversation mm-hmm. about masculinity. And this reminded me of this conversation about different forms of feminism. Because just recently, the U.S. Senate, uh, I think, voted to require women to register for the draft. And a few years ago, a trial program yeah. was put into place where women could join infantry and special operations units in the military. And I was horrified. But I had friends mm-hmm. and you know female friends whose opinions I respected and whose perspectives I wanted to better understand, who were who like telling me, well, look, you know, this is, this is actually good for feminism. And I just I could not wrap my mind around wanting to fight for the empire as being something yeah. good for feminism. And so this reminds yeah. me in a small way, I don't know if I'm drawing too far conclusions here, but I, I, this reminds me of the whole conversation that we're trying to have around Hillary Clinton, feminism, progressivism, left politics, and so forth. I mean, would you agree with that? Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, I, I think it's uh, I think it's actually a really important way, and because the um, I mean one of the, the I mean w- one of the really um, interesting traditions in feminism for a long time um, has been um, the critique of militarism as a um, um, really um, destructive um, form of um, masculinity. I mean, it's a really, a, a really destructive um, way of, um, of 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 expressing what it is to be a man, both on an individual level and at the level of the state itself. Um, and um, and this and you know, feminists have been. Um, critiquing that for a very long time, and often, um, and, and often um, being um, is often inspired a, a lot of um, political activism from the Green and Women's Common in England to um, the Women's Strike for Peace um, here in the, in the United States um, to um, Code Pink today, um, and um, you know, and you know, also. Um, w- women's groups around the world, especially in the global south. So, um, so, so I, I think that that's a, a really important thread that gets lost when we hail someone like Hillary Clinton as a feminist icon. Um, like this is somebody who has, um, as Yasmin Nair talks about in her essay in False Choices, um, Hillary Clinton has really chosen to negotiate the rocky shoals of being a woman in politics by um, being the most militaristic, you know, the most quote-unquote tough on crime. Like she's em- embraced the, 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 these incredibly um, authoritarian and violent um, forms of masculinity um, that feminists, feminists have often um, criticized, um, and um, and you know this is you know she's obviously in, in some ways doing doing that to um, to respond to sexist expectations, um, but that doesn't make it any better. I mean, and um, and she's really um, been um, a um, a, a very aggressive voice for hawkish policy. I mean, and at times as, as Secretary of State, she was um, even more 
um, supportive of military intervention than the Republican Secretary of Defense, um, and certainly than um, than most of the the foreign policy um, experts in the Obama administration. So you know, this is really um, this is really a place where she departs um, sharply from a, a lot of feminist thinking. Of course, now you do um, you do in recent years hear. Um, inclusion of women in the military, moving to include women in combat roles, um, hailed as a feminist accomplishment also. Um, but um, um, but I would really um, encourage that we look at these, um, the, the, the way that um, feminist traditions have also been intertwined with, um, with peace movements um, and, um, and think about um, how that might be a more of a more protective way of thinking um, about gender and international relations. Well, and a lot of this for I mean that you had mentioned it, and this is part of what I think we have to be nuanced about. And and I, and I noticed this sort of coming to age as an activist in the Obama era, and especially living in a city city I live in, in Michigan City, is about a third black. I live. 25 miles from one of the blackest major cities in the United States, in Gary, Indiana, where we do a lot of political work as well. And, you know, under the Obama era, it was, it was interesting. I mean, we had to, my friends and I on the left, we had to play this very careful balancing act. And even, you know, so black leftists who live in this area had to do the same thing within their own communities. Being a white leftist who lives in this area, it was sort of very important for me to make this distinction because we have rabid white supremacy and racism in this area. Not that it's just in this area. I understand that these are institutions that are sort of codified throughout our society, but it's particularly in this area. It's one of the most segregated areas in the United States next to the most segregated city in the United States, or arguably the most segregated city in Chicago. And so at one time we'd have sort of, how would you put it, liberal apologists for Obama and all of these terrible policies, mm -hmm. neoliberal and, and militaristic mm -hmm. policies. But then at the same time, we'd have these rabid racists. And now what I'm seeing, of course, is this sort of rabid sexism where I'm talking to a lot of white working class, middle-aged, uh, older gentlemen in the area, and they'll say, I hate Hillary Clinton. I can't stand that woman, blah, 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 blah. I don't understand that. And I say, well, we, okay. You, what don't you like about her specifically? What policies? This and you know, oftentimes a lot of it is irrational. But then some of it, they'll say, "Oh, well, you know, she supports these trade deals, or you know, she's right. she's got terrible foreign policy ideas." And so it, all of this to me seems very nuanced because at one time I feel like we have to defend her and other feminists who are being attacked in these very misogynistic and bigoted ways. But then, Definitely. at the same time, we have to provide a critique and also offer an alternative. I mean, so this seems yeah. to be very challenging, but I think I see more progress now than I did, say, in 2008 when we were trying to do the same thing with Obama in power. Does that, does, do you see some of yeah. the same things? Yeah, I do, too. I, I totally agree with you. And, um, and yeah, I think absolutely, with the, just as with Obama, we could, um, we, the, the left have had a responsibility to criticize him, but also to defend him against uh, racist right-wing lunacy, um, you know, and just like totally made up, totally made up criticisms um, and, um, 
some of them advanced by Donald Trump himself. <laughs> but um, but and and I think and similarly we have the same responsibility to um, to defend um, Hillary Clinton against um, sexist criticisms. Um, but at the same time, um, we um, not let that um, get in the way of criticizing her on substantive leftist grounds. Um, that said, I think that um, at least Hillary and her people are, um, are are pretty sophisticated at turning sexism to their advantage um, in a way that um, I don't think that Obama really um, um, engaged with the racism directed against him that much. I mean, he sort of he, 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 he sort of seemed to think it was at most of the time best to ignore it and he didn't really um, deploy it in his um, as, as as an advantage. Hillary Clinton uses sexism as an asset. I think that she is where she is in, a, in part because of um, of the way that she's worked sexism to her advantage. I mean, the... Um, I think that part of the reason women my age and older, I'm in my late 40s, um, uh, like often are, have this fondness for her is because of the way that she was um, attacked in the 90s by right-wingers and um, right. because of the sexist expectations that were piled on her as a first lady who actually had a career of her own. Um, and... Um, you know, and people uh, people really um, feel strongly about her and feel defensive of her, um, and um, and she um, has been very skilled at playing into that, making the smallest um, sexist like micro putting the micro in microaggression in the campaign with like, like Bernie Sanders is interrupting her now. <laughs> it's <laughs> such a drama, you know. And um, on oh, the Bernie yeah, Bros too. That was another interesting. Anyway, I don't want to interrupt you, but go ahead. No, no, no. That's exactly the kind of thing I'm talking about. And like, gosh, she seems to have some sexist followers online. <laughs> you know, well, I was amazed by all the other. People-wise. I was like, it wasn't so. So the campaign, I kind of expected. I'm like, man, these people are really sophisticated. These people yeah, are going to use not? this, and it's going to yeah. be great. But with each election, it's like I learn more and more. So like in 2007, 2008, I was I was learning about the left, getting involved, and in, unfortunately, in some ways, and I hate to say this, but I was learning how unprincipled many within the anti-war movement at that time were because. Here we were protesting the Democrats in 2008 at the Democratic National Convention and having tons of our supporters, donors, allies, and all kinds of people telling us we're nuts or that we're out of line or whatever. And seeing some of the same this this time around, but with the media. I mean, I am amazed. I know you, I I don't know how to pronounce her last name, but her her first name is Amanda Marcotti or Marcotti. And yeah, so I, I... somehow became friends with her on Facebook. I'm assuming I did not offer my friend request her, her way. It was maybe the other way around. And I, I just probably wanted to go after me <laughs> as a Bernie done. bro or something. And I'm reading her things and, I, and the articles, and I'm trying to keep up with all different perspectives just, you know, because that's what I like to do. And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, wow, not only her, she's a small example, MSNBC, The New York Times, The Washington Post, the way that this was sort of, it was pushed in an institutional fashion. So not just, you know, say through the, the campaign apparatus, but through many different uh, media yeah. institutions. And let's say they didn't have a, yeah. a, a direct material interest in this. There seemed to be an ideological, um, what would I say? It, it seemed like the, the ideologies matched up. So what the campaign was pushing seemed to match 
with an existing ideology that some of these media reporters, journalists, and so yeah. forth already held. Very much so. Very much so. Yeah, um, many uh, many of these liberal media journalists already um, hate the left, um, and um, and they um, um, and they and they hate they they hate the left. The small number of us left journalists who are um, in their ranks, and they hate the left in general. Um, and but I think that the Hillary campaign has really um, kind of given them a a chance to um to to codify that and um and really um um be on the attack um because the the burning campaign really um uh, really really brought them out in um, in droves with their uh, with with their left hatred and um and the bernie bro narrative which which as as we as we now know um, was um, the the campaign did play such a role in manufacturing um very much did rein, just reinforce what um what liberals in the media already um felt about the left that they were um these these rude unpleasant sexist people um and um and and um and and it's a useful i mean you know just despite the um, the lack of evidence that people supporting bernie sanders were particularly more sexist than people supporting any other candidate um right. the, there was um it was a useful piece of idiocy for the um, for the um, elites, for the media elites. I mean, to to be able to um, smear the Sanders campaign with, um, and um, and so it was really enthusiastically embraced. I mean, you know, years from now, historians are just going to be baffled by the number of think pieces that were written on this Bernie <laughs> Bro phenomenon. Like, they're going to be saying, what the hell was this? Like, why did anybody <laughs> believe this? You know, why did anybody think that this was an important thing? Um, you know, and, um, you know, when all it showed about Bernie Sanders himself was that he was a person with enough appeal to appeal to um, some you know, some some men who happen to be sexist. If he uh, hadn't been able to do that, uh, he would have been. He would have gotten about three percent of the vote. You know, I mean, <laughs> this is how. I mean, oh, yeah. <laughs> how, this is how he turns out to be a candidate with mass appeal. Is that right, you know, you right. can see that some of his candidates are very ill-behaved, rude, sexist people. Guess what? That's a lot of the population. You know, <laughs> and this also amazes me about the left. And they, I mean, they, I, we're criticizing sort of the liberal media, the liberal elite right now. But I mean, it's also on the left. I mean, one of the problems I've had living here was I would go to, say, you know, workshops in, or conferences in places like the Bay Area or Madison, Wisconsin. And, and again, me being from the area that I'm at, those areas to me are Burlington, Vermont. They were like a different world. I was like... Oh my God! <laughs> the way that people dressed, the way that people spoke, I was like, "This is way different than Northwest Indiana steel mill town, like where I grew up. Like, right. way, way right. different than this." And what I was always amazed at was how easily offended. Now, were the things that were being said offensive? Indeed, they were. But at the same time, I'm thinking to myself, "Man, I've made drastic changes since I was a 17, 18 year old, ignorant, white, working class kid from." you know, a, a, that, that sort of background. And I always thought to myself, shouldn't we be as activists as the left? Like, shouldn't we be not embracing these people, but bringing them into the fold 
and then doing what a lot of people did with me on various issues, not just, say, my sexism or my racism or anything like this, but in terms of the way I see the environment or our human relations to the environment. I mean, all of those things, they were challenged by people who were willing to listen to my ignorance but yet who are right. willing to sit there and, and say, hey, look, you know, here's another perspective. Here's why you're wrong. Here's what you should read. Here's what you should check out. Like, this seems to be a big problem to me. I mean, yeah, much bigger than just the election or Hillary Clinton. It goes beyond that. Absolutely, because uh, politics is not, uh, it, you're, you're, you know, building a movement should not be about uh, forming a clique. You know, I mean, like, the idea shouldn't be to, um, you know, identify all the different ways in which people offend you and then exclude them. I mean, the idea should be to, um, to like, to um, educate people, about, you know, about, um, you know, about, about um, anti-racism, about women's liberation, and about all the other issues. But you, you can certainly, um, you could certainly do that without. Um, drawing lines and um, and and vilifying people in that way, um, but the um, but you know that 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 speaks to um, I mean that that speaks to a certain elitism that is not um, is certainly not unique to the left, but is also often found on the left, unfortunately. Well, and you touch on this, really, this is a main theme in the book, is sort of a professional and or I think you refer to it as an elite feminism as opposed to a left feminism. So maybe yeah. I should ask you what, so would, you know, can you talk about the difference between the two? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, so, so what we've been talking about is certainly, um, I think, much more symptomatic of, of elite feminism that, um, that, you know, we are. Um, you know, your your um, your your feminism is expressed um, by um, you know being offended by things, and, you know, and by policing uh, the, the the way that people speak, um, because um, because because these are because um, because these are mechanisms of exclusion, like being you know, being continually in a state of offendedness about the way other people are speaking, um, and. Um, and what um, the, the 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 difference between the kind of elite feminism that Hillary Clinton represents, um, elite feminism is about the um, the the hope that a few women will succeed, uh, the hope that a few women will will reach the top, that um, corporate boards will be more um, gender inclusive, that um, that that a woman will eventually be elected president, uh, you know that that are um, um, that um, that our ruling class will be more gender inclusive is really uh, the hope of elite feminism. Um, the um, um, the what what a left feminism uh, 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 the, the 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 tradition of left feminism um, has much more to do with a concern with the vast majority of women. You know what uh, w- what would be liberating um, for the vast majority of women. What do most women need in order to enjoy um, full equality with men? Um, and um, in you know, I think for um, for most people, um, what we need is um, is is something resembling socialism. And you know, almost any kind of socialism 
would advance women uh, more than the current um, uh, situation that we have. Um, you know, it, it, it's um, it's women's women's uh, oppression is deeply intertwined. Um, with economic inequality. Um, women are the majority of low-wage workers, so, you know, these these kinds of um, excellent um, reformist uh, measures, like raising the minimum wage to $15, would help women even more than they would help men. Um, the um, um, single-payer health care um, would certainly um, help women um, even more than men, because um, because women uh, w- women really thrive um, in societies where um, healthcare is not dependent on either a job or a husband. You know where where you have more um, where you have more flexibility um, in who you who you marry or whether you are married where you have more flexibility about what your job is and whether you have a job at this moment um, or whether you're taking care of your kids or, um, or going back to school, um, all of, um, making health care not tied to those things um, is enormously beneficial to women. Um, if, you know, when we see, um, um, you know, the, the, the government invest in, um, broad universal programs that help everyone, like universal childcare. Um, these things obviously benefit women. Um, so um, I think um, you know what 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 left feminism recognizes is that you really can't um, separate women's um, equality with um, women's material situation. That, um, that gender is not just, you know, that sexism and patriarchy are not just um, expressed um, by, um, you know, men being rude on the Internet, although men are rude on the Internet often, um, as by women, um, but, um, but that women's, uh, women's oppression is um, most saliently located. In, um, in in our material economic situation. And do you see that as a broader phenomenon of like the, the larger context of neoliberalism? Yeah, I mean, so, so I think that the effort, the, the well, yeah, actually, I mean, I, I think that the um, the extent to which um, we as feminists can get confused about this. Um, is in many ways an outgrowth of neoliberalism. I mean, I think that um, candidates like Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama, who um, who use um, civil rights and feminist discourses to say, "Hey, look, you know, some of these um, um, some members of oppressed groups are really taking power and becoming president." Uh, you know, that's like th- that that. Um, I think that, um, that that's that's absolutely essential to the neoliberal project um, to say um, to to say that um, you know that that capitalism itself um, is very inclusive that the elite itself is very inclusive um, and um, and um, and to um, to have us be, um, be be content with an inclusive elite. Um, rather than demanding 
an actually inclusive um, democratic society, which would completely disrupt um, the project of neoliberalism. And do you think some of those differences are, I'm, I'm thinking right now, maybe a difference between uh, political approaches, political ideologies, and say the developed world or the developing world? Um, yeah, I mean, you, you know, I'm, I'm not... I mean, I don't want to draw that out in terms that of is... a dichotomous fashion, not to interrupt you. I mean, I, I don't want to draw, you know, make that too dichotomous, but I'm thinking of feminists uh, in the developing world, what the the struggles that are unique to that context as opposed to, say, the struggles that are unique to our context here? Yeah, um, well, I'm not the biggest expert on that, as uh, I would certainly love to know a lot more, um, but um, it certainly does it certainly does strike me that um that a lot of fem- feminism in the developing world um does does focus on extremely materialist issues um then again then again you know we you, you certainly do see um um elites in third world countries also using these kinds of multiculturalist um and and i'm sure in many cases um feminist um, you know, um, discourses to legitimize themselves because I think that in some ways this is becoming a global thing. Um, the the the, um, the the effort to um, to portray elites as um, um, as as meritocratic and inclusive. I mean, look, it it really um, makes it look as though they deserve to be where they are. You know, if you if if you can say, look, this elite is no longer sexist and racist. Um, then it makes it look all the more um, legitimate. You know, it's like it, it, you know, and, and that what that papers over is, um, yeah, this woman got to be where she is by giving two hundred and fifty thousand dollars speeches to Goldman Sachs. <laughs> so, you know, which is like you know, which is should should be a clear sign that um, that she is not going to um, govern in the interest of the vast majority of Americans, but rather in the interest of the financial sector. Um, but but the this this sort of um, um, rhetoric of inclusivity and um, and, and breaking the glass ceilings makes makes an um, makes an elite like that look um, look much more legitimate. So I think that's uh, that's an important part of the project. Look, I mean, Marx said um, you know an, a, 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 that a smart ruling class was going to um, groom the better qualified members um, of, of the uh, of the oppressed class. Um, to become part of it, you know, I mean, he like he he said that's that that that's what we would do, um, and um, and you know, obviously, um, he was clearly right about it. That in so many ways that couldn't have even been anticipated. And that seems to me, I mean, to me, it seems like that's the future. I mean, to me, the future of this neoliberal project, in terms of whatever, insofar as it has a future is people like Clinton and Obama. I mean, I don't see... Yeah, I mean, Trump absolutely. to me, okay, this to me seems like the last sort of rallying cry of, like, my dad's generation. And I don't want to, cla- like, group my yeah. dad in there because, I, I, you know, he actually is much more critical and, and I think has really good politics and especially as the years have gone on. But a mm-hmm. lot of his friends, it seems like that's, like, the end of it. You know, like, these, like, the, the angry yeah. old white-armed guy who's watching Fox News and drinking Budweiser at night, like... 
those days to me seem like they're coming to an end. And that doesn't necessarily mean that what's coming mm-hmm. after is a good thing. I just see the future being more along the lines of like, you know, maybe the next Obama Clinton is a, is a, a Latino or a Latina candidate. You know, maybe yeah. a candidate yeah. from the LGBTQ community, but who also believes uh, in American exceptionalism and the empire and so on. I mean, that, that to me seems yeah. like more of the future, more of what we're going to be facing or, or challenging as a left and, and having to provide an alternative to. I, I totally agree with that. Um, and it's really, it's nice to hear you say that you think that Trump is sort of the last guest because you are, um, you would be much more expert than I in that because you are in Trump country uh, much more than I am. Uh, and and um, so I'm glad to I'm encouraged to hear that your instinct about that is the same as mine, that it is it, that this sort of gasp of right-wing populism is not really uh, where the future is going in the long run. Um, I agree with you. I think we're, the, the, the future is with a, a multicultural neoliberalism um, and um and and a, and a and a gender inclusive one, and and even a trans inclusive one as well, and a gay inclusive one. And as Trump I, I hinted at, I know Trump. <laughs> Trump is really, um, you know, oh, the, I mean that that he that he came out and was like, I'm, you know, friend to. He's the like, LGBT yeah, I don't give community. a shit about who goes to the bathroom, where they go to the bathroom. <laughs> And I know, and he even oh. said that during the Republican primary, which was, you know, kind of interesting. Um, but um, yeah, so I, I think that's right. And 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 by and I and I think you know that is not to say that all of those issues are not important. They're very important. I mean, it's like it's you know the um, LGBTQ rights are very important, and um, and a, a um, working toward a non-racist is very important, um, but I think we also need to be uh, flexible enough to recognize um, how these um, how how these kinds of um, politics can um, be easily appropriated uh, by the elite and to elite ends. And I think that um, that we're 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 really um, we've really been seeing that um, with the Hillary Clinton campaign and. Um, and 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 I think that we're going to um, um, we're we're certainly going to continue um, to see that. I think the left has to get a lot smarter about responding to it. I mean, I think for one thing, um, we can't um, we like we we can't ignore it. I mean, I think we need to in part take it as a challenge to um, make our own movements. Um, that much more feminist and that much more um, anti-racist. I mean, I think that, you know, next time we run a social Democrat for um, president, um, you know, we should run a Latino grandma, you know? <laughs> like, right, you know, it shouldn't right. be, it shouldn't, we, we shouldn't have to constantly be defending our, our right to run a white man for president. I love Bernie <laughs> Sanders, but, you know, we no, don't you. really need <laughs> to get caught up in that. You know, I mean, like, we could, like, we, we could be 
putting forth as leadership, um, you know, people um, who also reflect the, the left, because the um, you know the the left is also broadly racial, diver- racially diverse, and full of uh, women leaders. Um, and um, you know, we should also, you know, we can also um, be talking a lot more about um, these uh, about feminism and anti-racism in our own terms. You know, we didn't hear in this primary campaign um, that much um, about why Bernie Sanders' uh, agenda is much more feminist than Hillary Clinton's, although I strongly believe that it is. You know, I mean, like, I, I, you know, I, I think that it's not very hard to make the case for why... Um, why socialism or social democracy benefits women, but it could have been made much more strongly during this primary season. You know, so I, I think that um, that we on the left need to get um, much better at um, talking about race and class and gender all at the same time, rather than telling people, you know, you just. Um, you just either have to, you either have to um, you know go with us you know because we know something about the economy or um, or listen to these people because they're anti-racist and anti-sexist. It's like no, we we can't let them have that. Like we need to do all of those things. And... Yeah, that makes sense to me. And, it, and it, what it brings up for me is also some of the complexities and contradictions that we do deal with on the left so thinking of this election so i'm talking to a good friend of mine who's an organizer in in chicago and we were he was telling me before the mayoral race between chewy garcia and rama Emanuel, he said look vince i just think the machine is a little too strong and i think that there's still too many divisions within the left to actually get Emanuel out of office i see something like 60 40 maybe 55 45 and it turned out i think it was like Mm -hmm. 56 uh 44 is what the you know the percentage turned out Mm -hmm. in favor of emmanuel and emmanuel won all of the precincts with an african-american plurality and Mm -hmm. what was interesting was the same so the same divides were mirrored in the presidential primary and the democratic primary yeah so some of the district and this i was going nuts when my friends were saying oh you know bernie doesn't have any latino support latina support i'm like oh my goodness like that was not true no no and you look at the 25th ward in chicago in the neighborhood in the pilsen neighborhood and they actually that was the highest margin of people who voted for bernie and out of any Mm -hmm. precinct within the city of Mm -hmm. chicago it was amazing Mm -hmm. so yeah but there were divisions so on the other hand all right, if you look at young African-Americans, 30 years old and under in the city of Chicago, they did prefer Bernie, but only, I think, by a percent or like one or two percent. Right, um, right. You know, and that, so my point being, I don't want to play into the dominant narrative, but I do think that us, at, you know, people on the left, I think would be remiss if we didn't recognize that the 2016 election also brought up some of the divisions and uh, contradictions within our movements, you know. So, like, I, totally I, I go agree. to a lot of environmental yeah. stuff, and the environmental movement has becoming more robust, more diverse, and so forth. But I still see it, and and anecdotally, and I think probably people would say this probably objectively as well as being largely an indigenous and also white movement. Um, there are, mm-hmm. in say, in the city of Gary, I know African American groups that are doing amazing work with regards to the environment, but 
overall, you know, like if we look at the whole movement or series of movements within the U.S., it looks like a largely white movement with also indigenous activists, particularly leading the way, say, in frontline communities and so on. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on some of that because we noticed it in Chicago and we didn't want to downplay it, but we also didn't want to feed into the dominant narrative that, oh, we'll look at Bernie supporters, they're just all a bunch of white kids and so on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think there, um, there's um, there's there's a lot of work to be done in building those uh, building those bridges and building those coalitions. I mean, I think that um, that for um, I mean, I think some of what we saw um, in um, in in the primary race with I mean, for for a lot of older African Americans, especially the um, the Democratic party is the alternative to the republicans and 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 the republicans are um legitimately viewed as frightening races and so you know so so for somebody like clinton having been a part of the democratic party for so long i mean that is um that is reason enough for many people to trust her like a lot of uh, like a, a lot of older people in the african american community um don't um don't have a like reflexive distrust of both parties like they have thrown in their lot with one party in order to oppose another that they see as being much worse you know and so you know so some of this just sort of has to do with how have people crafted different survival strategies with electoral politics um, to um, try to um, you know to try to, to try to make things a little bit better um, in uh, in our rather brutal society you know and so I, I think that um, I, I think that it it will take a lot of relationship building and a lot of um, building more trust for a candidate who's kind of outside of the Democratic Party to reach um, the to reach voters like that who have thrown in their lot with the Democratic Party. And I think there is a lot of dissatisfaction and discontentment with both parties, but there's also um, there's also a lot of attachment um, to the party and to party um, insiders that I think that, I think that uh, people could eventually um, be um, be persuaded by um, a, um, a credible outsider, but um, you know Hillary had been running for decades basically, and Bernie only really started last year, so it was kind of an uphill battle for to reach some of these constituencies. I think. Absolutely, no, absolutely. Um, well, we only have a few minutes left. We didn't talk nearly as much about the actual collection, but I didn't want to limit your knowledge just to a simple collection. I know you've been out there. I've been catching up on, I mean, I've been exposed to your work before, but I've been really trying to catch up on your work, looking at your YouTube interviews and reading your articles and everything. So I I wanted to get your thoughts on all of these issues because I I just, I respected your opinion. I wanted to try and broaden this out as much as we could. So I hope you don't mind. Oh, no, I don't mind at all. Um, Okay. Thank you so much. Great. Great. Yeah, because I'll, I'll talk... In the future, I'll probably interview uh, several of the people who contributed to the, to the collection as well. Yeah, that would be really great. Um, yeah, you should, um, and definitely, definitely let me know which, uh, and I can help you put you in touch with them. 
Excellent, excellent. And so, any any uh, closing words, comments, reflections, anything? You know, we got a few minutes left. I just anything that you didn't get to say that you'd like to say. Um, I think just that um, you know, as 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 crazy as this um, election has been in so many ways, I am actually fairly um, hopeful. You know, we 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 just had an election in which. Um, we heard a lot more about feminism than we usually do and a lot more about socialism than we usually do. And those are the two, those are two movements that are really central to human liberation. So, um, you know, perhaps, um, perhaps that is something to build on. Absolutely. And my friends who are organizers absolutely agree with you. So while I've become cynical at times and, you know, I consider myself an activist. I don't know if, if, the, the, if the difference means as much to other people, but I will say the friends that I know who are constantly organizing, I, I just I, I cannot call myself an organizer. So my friends who do that, they tell me, Vince, right now is sort of the most optimistic we've been in years. Um, so, you know, obviously we have this looming specter of climate change and, and so on, and, and I think it does get people, it gets me cynical, it gets me, I think, down. Yeah. Um, but then on the other end, when I can go to a house party in LaPorte, Indiana, so for those of you out there who know where LaPorte is, you understand, but for those who don't, I mean, just imagine the most Mayberry-esque town that you can imagine in 2016, and to have house parties with 50, 60, 70 people who are talking about socialism blew my mind mm -hmm. this year. So, mm -hmm. great, great things. Um, Liza, thanks for coming on the program, and we'll have you back on the program if you'd be willing to come back at some point. Oh, anytime. Thank you so cool. much. Cool. Thank you very much. That was Liza Featherstone, who is a journalist based in New York City and a contributing editor to The Nation where she also writes the advice column, Asking for a Friend. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, Miss, and Rolling Stone, among many other outlets. She is the co-author of Students Against Sweatshops, The Making of a Movement, and the author of Selling Women Short, The Landmark Battle for Workers' Rights at Walmart. She is the editor of False Choices, The Faux Feminism of Hillary Rodham Clinton. All right, folks, next week you can catch us back here again. As always, Meditations and Molotovs, this is the Progressive Radio Network. You can check us out at prn.fm, 2 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Every Monday, I'm your host, Vince Emanuele. Thanks for joining us.